The sagacious, uxorious, inimitable, magnanimous, indefatigable, urbane Adam Page joins me <laughs> on this humble little podcast today. Adam, this is episode 16. Okay, we uh, I've had quite a ride. I've had some really fun interviews. This, this, I really feel like, might be one of our most fun. Adam, you are an enjoyable man to, to read on Twitter and to talk to. Um, I've listened to your podcast. You are the pastor at Amelia Baptist Church in Fernadina Beach, Florida. See, I, I pronounced it perfectly. Did you notice that? <laughs> you did your first time, too. There was no correction First time. Prior. Didn't ever make yeah. a mistake. It's <laughs> good. Uh, I have a question for you, just to, right off the bat. What are wedding ceremonies like this time of year at Fernadina Beach? Oh, yeah, they're hot. Um, I mean, you're in Florida, man. I mean, there's just the humidity is in, is in full-fledged uh, annihilation. Kill your skin, uh, make you sweat everywhere. And here's the thing. If you have a beach wedding, or if they want a beach wedding, they typically don't make you wear a suit because it doesn't kind of go with the feng shui, you know, of the whole thing. But no, that's you're not, supposed to wear flip-flops. You're supposed to wear yeah, shorts it, and all that. Right. They want it to look like a JCPenney catalog in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole movement is be outside because it's so beautiful and it in so many areas it is absolutely beautiful i'm a big florida fan but in, in all honesty the suits man the suits the, the three layers in 98 degree weather outside holding an ipad with sweaty hands there are <laughs> there are more there are more fun things to do as a pastor in florida than outdoor weddings but yeah that's I, I'm not complaining over the seriousness of the covenant of people wanting to get married, but you know, find somebody. So, are you saying that no one should get married in Florida? Is that kind of <laughs> that's your it? Point here? You like... are you are translating it perfectly. You can tell you've been on Twitter a while. It's exactly what Just I said. Leave Florida if you want to get married, or yeah, go somewhere you know, else. be kind to your pastor. Let him wear his speedos. You know, let him wear <laughs> yes. let him wear his his tank top. You know, as we know that that's kind of your M.O., that's your dress. So Just some shorts and a T-shirt would suffice. That'd that would be, be nice. Anything. <laughs> uh, you host the Amelia Baptist Roundtable podcast. There's great stuff on there. A lot yeah. of cool Q&A stuff. You're really you're really fun. You're you're really talkative. You Thanks, like man. to talk, which is good. Um, yeah. Why did you decide to start this podcast? So we started the podcast not necessarily to reach um, anything farther or outside of our community. Our, our community was going through the same thing a lot of other communities were going through in March 2020. You know, we were not necessarily on a long shutdown, but there was a couple weeks there that sort of scared all of us. No matter how conservative you really played it, you had a couple weeks there where you're like, what's happening? You know, this is, we didn't know at the beginning. Um, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of information about COVID-19, uh, but we did get together as a staff and, and as as people who really wanted to continue to connect to our church. We're a very relational, uh, family-oriented church body. We're about three, 350 in number, and that's increased a little bit. And so we're just like, hey, we don't want anyone to feel left out. We, if they can't be here or they're for health concerns, they're choosing not to, uh, what can we do to sort of increase and keep up or even sustain our level of discipleship and connection? And so uh, my, my friend and coworker, Dylan Whitaker, he runs IT and communications at Amelia. He had the idea and we sort of ran with it and uh, got some cameras together and started utilizing our YouTube channel, which was typically just for sermons and, and made, made it about the podcast. And then we had got in touch with Clayton Edwards, who was a college student who's now at UCF and he's practicing film and recording and he has all the know-how. And he was like, man, we should really be putting this on podcast platforms. And so 
we did. And so it sort of just snowballed into a good amount of listeners now, a good amount of reach outside of, of our church community. So the reason we started it is not the reason we've continued it. The reason we've continued it is because we've really developed some really great relationships uh, with our listeners that they reach out. And we have people who, who are in Liverpool, people who are in Brazil. There's really like, it's all over. The, it's crazy. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not worldwide. I'm not, I'm not in like a Joe Rogan uh, Spotify contract or anything, but that's not the goal. The goal was just to develop relationships and to really fight for the Bible sufficiency and see where we could take that theological application into the culture. And, and I love talking about culture and I'm a big humanities nut, big uh, pop culture nut. And so it, it was just an, it was an excuse, honestly, to talk to your friends for a while too, but it's been, been beneficial to our community. Got some local pastors in there uh, talking about things. So still community first, but, but has had a cooler outreach than we thought. I do appreciate how, you know, God used those you know, those two years, really tumultuous years for so much good in training churches like even my church here at Princeton Bible Church to start using technology they're a little bit uncomfortable with mm-hmm. um, and start broadcasting truth in places and in ways um, that maybe we hadn't done before. Um, and so that's that's really neat how what Satan really intended for evil, God is using for good. And um, I, I highly recommend your podcast for those um for those out there who listen, um, you need a little, a few more follows or at least a few more reviews. Um, I think you yeah. have, I think you only have four, but they're yeah. good ones. You got five I've, stars, but I think you I've need nev- more. I've never asked for a review. Maybe I should start I'm doing asking that. I, for you. I, they, I appreciate it, man. You already have in my back. I appreciate that. That's good. Always. I have your back. <laughs> I so, never done listen. it. Maybe I'll get my grandma to do it. She's, yeah. She's well, a big listener. yeah, your grandma, Reagan Rose's parent, you know, Reagan Rose, <laughs> Like a thousand people lined up who have their own iTunes accounts who just get on and they review his <laughs> his, his, uh, his uh, podcasts. Is that so, real? No. Oh my gosh, How that's kind of my running joke best. with him. Well, listen, you're a, you're a father of four, right? Yeah, that's how I checked. You're last time you checked. You this morning. This morning. Yeah, this morning. Yes, yeah, good. Um, you're also an avid guitarist. Is that mm. true? Yeah, yeah. That's my. Uh, it, was my outlet more in uh, than recent years? Seems like I got to make the time more now. But yeah, I, I love I love playing. I pick up the strings and get after Do it you, once in a while. You also mentioned to me, uh, Adam, that you freestyle rap and that you actually <laughs> no. have prepared one. Is no, that's true? not true. No, that's not, that's inaccurate information. You, like we had uh, Chris always. Williams, we had Chris Williams on, <laughs> you know, earlier in the week, and I I DM'd him. I said, listen, there's this guy coming on my podcast <laughs> this did. week who's probably better than you. That's um, not true. I so, messaged you, and after I listened to the episode with Chris, <laughs> I said, how awesome would it be if I shared a piece of music, which was just me freestyle rapping, and there's no way I would follow Chris uh, okay, in that so anyway. Can... So you're going to have to get like James White or somebody in between us uh, to soften that blow. Um, <laughs> although, wouldn't it be hilarious if like James White just could totally spit uh, like a, a great freestyle rap. I'm pretty podcast. sure he can't. I mean, I, there's not sure. much he can't do, right? So I'm yeah. He's probably like, yeah. riding his bike. He's probably on like his 500th mile, and he he's probably just like he's got all of the lyrics in his mind. Um, it's probably what he does as soon as he gets off his bike is he starts he's spitting lyrics. Very connected to the Arizona gangster scene there. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, engaging the culture. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What a segue. What a segue. <laughs> hey, well, we're not quite there yet. That was really okay. Good. good. Segue, that was I'm going to ruin the segue. I'm ruining it. I, 
see, I like to do things the wrong way. Um, okay. And I'm, this is not a professional podcast. You're working on a book on multi-generational churches as well, aren't you? Yeah, about uh, half a chapter in and then another chapter down the road. It's nowhere near complete, but it's it's definitely something I'm trying to get to amidst everything else. But Okay, we'll a lot talk of, a lot little of bit about that there. later. We'll yeah. talk about it later, okay? Um, you're an enormous Kirk Cameron fan, too. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have been since Growing Pains, but I love what he's. Uh, I love what he's after recently. Um, yeah. I haven't been much about promoting him for you know the sake of films or anything like that. But I very much appreciate uh, what he's doing right now, uh, mm. which is an incredibly controversial thing, but I think dire in uh, in Christian communities for sure. Yes. Well, he had Josh Dawes on to talk about you know critical race theory. I thought that mm -hmm. was a really great interview, and that was wild. Yeah, that Josh yeah. got on there for that. That was crazy. Yeah, I was really happy for him. Um, all right. So, anything else you want to add um, in this introduction? Anything I'm missing? Nothing at all, man. Just uh, I wanted to recommend a new barbecue sauce to you. Um, you and I have talked about food several times, but yeah. there is this, there is this Lily's ivory barbecue sauce. If you're into Northern Alabama, white barbecue sauce, cause that's pretty much all I would eat. Uh, Lily's. If, 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 Lily's ivory barbecue sauce, it's a Northern Alabama white barbecue sauce. So don't look at it and go, I'm not a big horseradish fan. It's nothing like that. It is legit barbecue sauce that will light up your grill. I absolutely recommend it. And I, I eat sauce on everything. So. Big, okay. uh, big fan. Yeah, that's it. That's I'm, all. That's all I have to talk about. I'm a big like I'm a big meat smoker. OK, um, so this is important. <laughs> this is important for information for all of us. <laughs> I'm telling you, um, man, I knew you'd appreciate it. Yeah, I so appreciate it. Lily's Ivory Barbecue mm -hmm. Sauce. Good. That's the, um, that's the you are a big food guy. Uh, before we get into the important stuff, I've got this new segment that I'm starting today called Hot Food Takes. Um, you're going to give me a, a hot take on food and then we're going to talk about it and then it will be my turn. We'll have three quick rounds. It's not going to be long, but I, but we're going to give some, <laughs> some hot food takes. So I need your first hot food take. So it can be literally anything or you like what you do or what you just think about food period. Yeah. Just a hot take something that's, oh. that's just crazy. A crazy take. Oh. Okay, my crazy take for real is uh, I prefer Chick-fil-A chicken over Zaxby's, but I prefer Zaxby's sauce. So I think that's... the perfect combination is Chick-fil-A chicken with Zaxby's sauce. And I think it's very <laughs> controversial. See, I don't know what you have up there in Illinois. We have Zaxby's. Are you at the Raising Cane's side of things? Uh, uh, we have Chick-fil-A. So you have, have Chick-fil-A, but you don't have yeah, Zaxby's. Yeah, you don't really get into Zaxby's, I don't think, until All you right. get like down to the Kentucky... Tennessee area for us. Well, so it goes, the same goes for Raising Cane's. It's nothing against Chick-fil-A sauce, but I just think there are 10 times better sauces out there uh, that can go with the Lord's chicken, um, which is, you know, Chick-fil-A and, and <laughs> what they stand for. So that's <laughs> to me, that to me, that connection is missing in people's lives. It needs to be All there. right. That's good. Uh, my hot food take, number one, is Olive Garden is better than real, authentic Italian food. And I'm going to oh say it. I'm shouting it I can't, from the I can't believe that. I can't believe what I said I thought was controversial. No, this is this has made many people angry at me, and Goodness I fully believe gracious. it. Uh, where else can you get <laughs> unlimited breadsticks, um, unlimited salad, chicken and gnocchi. Uh, they've got this amazing chocolate. I think it's authentic. I think they make it in Italy. This authentic Italian, like, lasagna chocolate cake. Um, Whoa. Totally authentic. So that's my hottest take. Is Bro, Olive Garden is better than real authentic Italian food. I I don't even know how to 
actually top that. I like I'm you have me thinking now of like the minestrone soup and like the breadsticks and the, and yes. the salad. Like that is definitely some some good stuff there. When you're there, your family. they're going to be. You know, <laughs> I love that you're also like promoting them as if they like have a sponsorship uh, <laughs> at the Pio Bros podcast. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I, there's some probably some some stuff that you know I, I would get in trouble for that is specific to Florida. So, for instance. Um, this this area is heavy into their seafood like it really is if you're traveling here or you're vacationing here you, most of the recommendations are going to be seafood oriented recommendations um so if you're not really heavily into seafood then you're just you're kind of ostracized like it's a tough it's like being in amelia island and being a pastor that doesn't play golf like <laughs> you're just you're just not accepted you're you're quasimodo Right. So, so what are you getting at here? Adam? So the hot take I have is I don't like crab legs. <laughs> they're not worth they're not worth the work. They're literally the most work to eat. And I'm including like hunter gatherer phases of humanity <laughs> as well. Like when you had to actually go hunt down, I would rather go hunt down my beef uh, in any way, shape or form or my steak or anything. than I would rather deal with a crab leg for that sliver of meat you know, that comes out (laughs) is I I have no, it baffles me. I feel like if they were really aliens, they'd have seen us doing that and felt confident enough to take over. I I don't, (laughs) I don't, I don't get it. I, so I, that's a huge deal. Like that is probably going to get, I'm probably going to walk into an elders meeting uh, where they, where they (laughs) they tell me that the Lord's called them in a different direction. (laughs) This is Uh, (laughs) the first ever, first ever time where a church is told, telling a pastor that they are called. Uh, yeah, it went to a different place. Yeah, for sure. Over that. That's how serious it is. Okay, that's that's a good one. That's a really yeah. good one. Um, yeah. My number two is rice is the worst. Um, it isn't <laughs> anything. Um, it is needlessly filling. It ruins meals. Um, it reminds me of bugs. And that's all I have. That I mean, that's number two. Rice <laughs> is the worst. So like even wait, so you have like on sushi? Do you, 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 think, you think it serves no purpose? I, it, it, I eat sushi. But it fills me up way too much. Like it's more than it should. It makes me bloated. Um, people put rice in burritos. Why? Well, rice and all kinds of weird things. I'm a big, uh, yeah, no rice. Don't give me any rice. I'd rather take your noodles than rice. So <laughs> that's amazing. It grosses um, me out. I don't like rice. I would probably have to go. I have like several things in my head right now because you're up in the ante. Like you, you're, this is some generalized. Hot hot like you just tapes. i'm pretty specific and you're like i don't like rice like i'm pretty sure <laughs> i'm pretty sure like three billion people in the world depend on on rice uh and rice i just said don't give me any oh i know one that gets me into trouble i don't put salt on anything wow yeah okay. like i guess that counts as a food take but i really i feel like food should be able to stand on its own this doesn't mean i don't season things but you know how people live on salt and like they can't mm-hmm. eat without like it covered in salt or they can't taste it? Never. Not one time in my life have I have I ever wanted to put salt on anything like so that. You so you order they, things without salt? Is that I, don't, I don't I don't go against like purposely go against the grain okay. uh, for lack okay. of a better uh, phrase. But yeah, so like it, it's just something I don't do. I don't put salt on anything. And I've just everywhere I go, people are just dousing their food with salt. I'm like, if it isn't good enough to stand on its own feet, man. Don't it's, eat. it's not good enough to eat. Right. Yeah. I'm a, okay. My last take is, is uh, I'm a ban all fruit pies guy. 
So I don't oh, eat any wow. fruit powder. Yeah, I don't think really? that I don't think fruit belongs in any dessert, really. Um I, I'm I'm not a fruit guy in my there's dessert. no way that there's no way that's true. It is true. Hundred percent. I don't know if you. I don't know if you. So you've never like you've just tried it and it's not been for you, or is this something you developed in adulthood? I no. I've just I've just always been against fruit pies. I don't. I'll eat them if I <laughs> if someone makes it, but if if someone gives me an apple pie, I'll eat it begrudgingly, but not with joy. That so. seems unpatriotic. Like I know what what are you eating when everyone else is eating apple pie? Uh, sometimes just like a chocolate cake, or so you're just a, a you know, you're even just like a, a chocolate. French silk pie. So you're yeah. just a chocolate guy. Like that's what this is. You chocolate, just... really? Yeah. But you've like, never had like the cherries. So you would you eat? Would you reverse it? Would you eat like chocolate covered strawberries, or does that count? No. Again, no fruit in my dessert. <laughs> Don't do not mix those two no, categories. No, together. no yeah. rice and no fruit in your dessert. Yep. Ban those. Just... Ban those two things. I thought right, my well, crab leg thing was. You've tough. already given me three takes, right? We've got <laughs> yeah. three hot takes. <laughs> My salt one's going to get me in the most trouble, probably. Or the crab legs, probably, around here. Yeah, crab legs yeah. got you under church discipline, I'm pretty sure. So, <laughs> be Matthew. All right, let's like move that. on to more important things. Brother, you are a father of four. You're a few years ahead of me, age-wise. What are some practical steps that you've taken to disciple and lead your family? I It's something I need to continue to grow in, um, to the, the shepherding aspect of my my almost, you know, soon to be 10 year old, my, my seven year old, my four year old and my two year old, you know, what are some practical steps that I can take and that you've taken to kind of lead family to Christ? Mm. Yeah. Well, um, we are really big on the attempt and I will say that and with, with a hopefully in humility and not in something that I'm kind of saying what we do every night and, do faithfully, but we are big family worship uh, people. The, the goal is, uh, as far as gathering them around and sitting them down at the couch or having a room for it, there's tons of different ways in which to uh, sort of make this a part of your week and your part of your nights. Um, it's about consistently talking about the Word at home, the, the, the Word of God not being separate from the way you talk about everything else, but it being sort of infused in daily conversations um, I think that time with your kids is vital. And as a pastor specifically, uh, the goal is always don't put the church before your family. Uh, make sure that that has its proper place in your priorities. Uh, having a good godly wife that uh, continues to reiterate uh, this, not just in what she says, but in how she lives, is vital uh, for the family dynamic. Um, they have to see it. I have uh, story after story of you know, working in student ministry, and it wasn't until, you know, a, a kid's mom or dad starts to take their walk with Christ seriously and visibly that the kid makes real change. And you remember that the pastor has you for maybe one or two hours a week. I can maybe, you know, check in on you throughout the week, especially now, uh, given our, our communication modes. Uh, but at the end of the day, if they can see mom and dad involved and in it and dedicated, it has massive effects. So that's one way in which we really try to, you know, dig into the gospel with our girls is it's always a time of a place of interest because we want to talk about it. We want it to be on our minds, on our hearts. I think that you can get into a little bit of a legalism by setting a holy time aside and it just being about that and sort of bringing them in to where they start feeling like it's school. We really try to make it, you know, uh, consistent, but also part of our daily conversation. So we're big fans of Don Whitney's uh, family worship uh, tactics mm -hmm. in his book. I think that was very helpful. I had him when I was at Southern 
and he's just always been a really cool head about that. Randy Stinson has some great ideas. Uh, Rob and Amy Reno do a lot of really good work at, at Visionary mm-hmm. Family. He's Illinois too. Um, and so that I would I would look at those guys as how they've modeled through their family. Rob's really big on having a room specifically for this, and I think there's a lot of good to that. But when you have a certain lifestyle that's pretty demanding, you're trying to make things happen at home. And then the church is supposed to be equipping homes, uh, and that, that kind of ends up being a problem if you get that reversed. Uh, the church's idea is to equip families, and the real discipleship that goes on in the life of a kid uh, is at the house with his parents, uh, sort of under the Deuteronomy 6 principles of uh, spiritual discipleship. So we try to reiterate that, uh, you know, and then there's smaller stuff like catechisms at night, um, some good memorization stuff. Our kids are part of National Bible Bee, uh, which we we do at our church every summer or the past two summers now. So we're, we're sort of continuing a tradition that we mm-hmm. hope it stays. So some good stuff. Speaking of Kirk Cameron, National Bible Bee. Yeah. And, uh, okay. I've yeah. never heard of National Bible Bee. It's pretty cool. Um, it's de- this year they're doing Ruth because they attach a study to all the verses they want the kids to memorize. And the kids sort of compete on a local level and it can get up to pretty high as far as a national level of competition. And it's really absurd, <laughs> like in a wonderful way, how much uh, scripture these these 12 to 13 to even seven or eight year olds can retain uh, when it's purposed and when there's time for it. So. You, you can talk about this for a while, but it really comes back down to making the time and taking the initiative uh, to make talking about Christ and Christ crucified and the, the application of the gospel in our daily lives, the practicality of Bible living uh, ingrained in your conversations with your kids, you know? Amen. Yeah. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your child. You shall talk of God's law when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way lie down and when you rise. So it is a, a lifestyle thing. Yeah. Um, and in truly we have found, you know, those 30 minutes, 20 minutes that we have um, maybe three to four times a week um, in a, in a room sitting around together to be just so beneficial and fruitful. But I think you're absolutely right. When we are having a fire at night, you know, outside or when I'm taking my kids to sports, you know, or whatever, and, and they're dealing with, um, they're dealing with stuff. They're dealing with life, man. Those are beautiful opportunities to bring the gospel into conversations. Thank you, brother, for that, that insight. You've mentioned yeah. on Twitter that, that your church has grown significantly over the two years. Um, you've seen more baptisms. You've seen deeper commitment to the preaching of the word. I'm curious, why, why do you think that is? Yeah. So, in my take, there's two takes. One is a personal take, and there's one that's sort of um, cultural. And I think COVID uh, and this time of COVID and the season of COVID sort of did one of one of two things for churches. Um, now, there's always going to be a, a, a fraction where things sort of stay the same. And, and I'm not just talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about spiritual growth because this I don't ever want to appear like um you know, some guy who's just implementing a growing system. That's certainly not what mm-hmm. we were after. Our, our, our goal was we, we are a relational family equipping Christ-centered church. And so our goal was really just to keep our church family together in a communication with fellowship and discipleship. So, so there was no uh, huge programmatic implementation or uh, really not a lot of cleverness outside of maybe singing outside a couple of times. Um, but the whole concept of, of taking care of our church family took precedent. Like, uh, we, we had preached from the pulpit really to throughout this whole thing, even political conversations or takes that were causing some separation on how things were handled. Everyone had a different way in which they were going about it. When they started coming back, it was slowly. And, you know, I, we personally never 
Um, we never implemented like a, you must wear a mask to enter the church. We just didn't want anything to be in the way of someone coming to church. We still don't. So that was just mm -hmm. kind of where it was like, if there's anything at all keeping you from hearing the gospel, that's not on us. But, you know, I think there were recommendations during the beginning earlier uh, to kind of mention that maybe we never connected that to the second greatest commandment or anything. Uh, I feel like that's sort of a faulty mode uh, of translation. But but the whole concept was be considerate and and be, be, you know, pay attention to the weaker brothers and weaker sisters. And in that sense, it was physical, too. So just basically be thinking of others. And we didn't think we could go wrong about that, you know, as long as we didn't make it hot takes. So that was kind of cultural uh, in our community. You saw a lot of churches do that and. Then you saw some churches who maybe had more of a pragmatic model, uh, specifically non-denominational churches or smaller Baptist churches, start to lose uh, a good amount of members. Um, at least they would move online and not come to church anymore. And there's, there's still many in our community that are reeling uh, from that. And so it took a, took a huge chunk out of their attendance. I think one of the main reasons why we've seen what I would call slow, responsible growth uh, over the past several years is we've kept it about the main thing. Um, it, it never was about COVID. It was always about why we established a church and what we're preaching and the importance of local church family and discipleship. And we did it. We basically kept politics out of the pulpit and just kept it about uh, the ministry and the gospel. And uh, I found that churches that kept the main thing, the main thing, instead of kowtowing or bowing a knee to cultural opinion, uh, sort of earned uh, a bit more of the respect from people who had not come to their church before. And so the, the, it wasn't just, by the way, that other churches um, that, that were losing members, people were finding our church. That wasn't necessarily true at all. We're, we're choir, congregational singing. Um, we don't have a, a modern, you know, contemporary feel or band. Um, I wouldn't suggest that the preaching is dynamic. We, we walk through series together. Uh, we be pretty firm exegesis in each of the sermons, at least that's what we hope. And we have elders for accountability. So we're a little different than your typical uh, SBC uh, church, although that, that has a huge spectrum. But culturally, it seemed like the difference was, are you keeping the main thing the main thing, or have you lost your way amidst all the other hot takes uh, in the last two years? And that, that was culture. Personally, one of the main reasons I feel like we've experienced growth is because we live on an island where there were many um, Methodist and Presbyterian churches who were no longer preaching the Bible. And one thing we kept hearing from people uh, over and over again was, honestly, it pains us to go to a Southern Baptist church. Like they would physically, they would actually say that. They would. Say, this is prior to, you know, guideposts and everything. They would say, like, we've just never been a fan. And I'm like, yeah, I understand. Like, I would just kind of shrug it off going, it's a broad brush. You know what I mean? Like SBC, that's a that's a broad brush. Uh, and so they would, you know, I never would step foot in here, but if you're preaching the word of God for the word of God, you know, for the glory of Christ and, and you're being honest to what the word says, that's what we want. And so they were just hungry for Bible preaching, uh, which was interesting, really interesting, uh, given the cultural context and sort of the mis stereotypes of the Bible Belt South, uh, in a lot of ways. And so it, it's, it was very interesting to see growth during that time period, simply because we wanted people to take care of the weaker brother and sisters and also continue preaching um, Christ and Christ crucified. And so that was, uh, I think, well, God's blessing. The Holy Spirit draws, you know, we shepherd. And there's just something about preaching the gospel hope, the hope of resurrection, the hope of eternal life, um, that just that just entered into the darkness and the worry and anxiety of COVID and just absolutely, um, it brought people to a place of recognition that, <laughs> that, the word is true. The gospel is true. And it is, you know, that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection 
has absolute importance for the here and now. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it took it from, I think what COVID did is it took the, for some people, it took the gospel from this ethereal out of bounds, you know, kind of this um, thing that we always heard in Sunday school all the time, but didn't really understand what it meant to now, you know, understanding the reality that we could die at any moment made the gospel so important and real to people. And so right. whether it's, you know, whether it's people just outside the church coming into the church, realizing that, or even, even our own folks within the churches who are, who are members. Um, I think just the, the importance of the importance of the truth of God's word just became even more obvious um, as, as struggles and difficulties um, entered into our lives. And that's what James one says happens, you know, as we are, as we suffer, as we go through trials, we become patient, we endure, and that increases our hope. Um, as I think about, you know, as I think about your church on Amelia Island, um, what are some of the unique challenges you face in reaching it? You know, you talked about everyone golfing. Yeah. You know, you got to know how to golf um, <laughs> to be a part of that that uh, that place, that culture. What are some of those unique challenges? Yeah, so, you know, I say that because geographically, our church, we have a good friend, Zach Terry, who's, who's pastor at First Baptist Church of Fernandina uh, Beach, and he's sort of on the north end, and we're sort of on the south end. Um, and so down the street, you have uh, the Omni and the Ritz, right? And so right off the bat, you're kind of like in a place where, well, I, number one, I can't afford to live on the island. Like I can't afford to live on the island I pastor. And, and they take good care of us, good care of our family. But I live in a, a sort of Yuli Fernandina area. Yuli's most known now because that's where Derrick Henry, the running back for the Tennessee Titans, is from, like his high school. Okay. There. So he just passed Yuli, away. No, yeah, no, he, I'm no. sorry. I'm thinking wrong guy. Buff, you freaked me out. I was like, no, he did gracious. not die. I have sorry, people to I'm call thinking of Marion right Barber. Now. Sorry, wrong, <laughs> right. wrong. NFL big difference. Yeah, big difference. Sorry. He's still going. Derek Henry's still going. Okay. Uh, not so, dead. Yeah, you're not dead. <laughs> this is going to go everywhere and it's going to yes. make me, yeah, make me a part of the crime. Uh, so between that and crab legs, I'm literally done in this community. <laughs> uh, but but Yuli and Fernandina area sort of share a lot of a lot of land. There's a real weird, different sort of intersection to where you actually live and your zip code and all that. So I'm sort of all what we call off the island. I drive to the island and it's not like everybody on the island is the same either. Of course, these are broad brushes, but there is, you know, there's affluence, there's wealth uh, in that community. I will say, too, though, that our church is incredibly uh, giving. They have a very, very big giving nature. I've always seen that, recognized that in them. And, and not everyone who goes is affluent, uh, you know, are incredibly affluent uh, financially. They, there's all over the county people come. And so we have a different environment. But one thing I think that's, that's very specific to that area is just the effects of cultural Christianity. Uh, there are a lot of people, uh, one of two things, really, one being cultural Christianity, two being people retire in Amelia Island. So this has sort of become a melting pot uh, of people from all different walks, uh, all different faiths, uh, all different uh, Christian denominations, as well as different parts of the U.S. So even the culture is different. And so part of the challenge, one, is just addressing uh, you think you've been safe since you walked down the aisle when you were five and repeated a prayer and you know signed a card and or you went to a vacation Bible school and they gave you a card and they put your name on it and you could either put it in the pot that was on fire or the pot that had you know cool smoke machine stuff coming out yes. of it and that was represented heaven and then you you kind of banked on that you could live however you want your behavior was completely detached from your belief uh, so a lot of stuff Dean temp- t- uh, addresses in the unsaved Christian was pretty. Uh, pretty relevant in, in the in the Bible culture, Bible Belt culture, where there are a lot of churches, but what are they really doing? What are they really studying? What are they really learning? 
and you get into the statistics and realize that no one's reading their Bible. So it was just kind of that has always been a, an issue if you were going to pastor or you're going to lead a church in the Bible Belt South. You're going to run into some pretty uncomfortable conversations uh, than maybe, you know, more along the lines of the West Coast or, you know, Northern Oregon or Seattle, where you put something out and it's like some people might have heard from, you know, about Jesus for the first time. So you're getting a pretty big yes or no right there. And now it's like everyone's saved. You're in a culture, you're in a community where everyone knows Jesus and is saved. Uh, now you have to kind of peer in and go, well, what does that mean to you? And how does that affect your life? And let's look at the things you love and the way you spend your time. So that's that's always a challenge because it has to get personal really fast. Um, you know, it, it kind of goes right into uh, faith that's connected to your grandparents' faith. Uh, you're not saved because your mom and dad are good, solid biblical Christians. You're not, you know, you know it's, it's not just that, it's like what Vody says, you know, it's not just like you're a Christian because it cured you of your alcoholism. He's like, Mormonism could do that. Uh, are you in it for the biblical Jesus? And so uh, theology, of course, really important. Doctrine really, really matters uh, in our area because uh, it's just not been talked about a whole lot in the Bible Belt South. It's pretty, pretty big rooted, uh, easy believism in cultural Christianity down here. Uh, so I don't know if that's how that how it rolls in in Illinois where you're from, uh, but I know that we can have that that in Bible Belt culture for sure. And so that's always an issue. And then two, just sort of affluence getting in the way of really serving and giving your time and uh, loving Jesus. But I, I the pastor who was there before me, or he's still here, but we've uh, changed roles and functions as uh, I've, I've become the primary preaching pastor. But he's been here for 33 years. He and his wife Pam. And uh, he's not once had a sermon series or a special summer or a special lesson on tithing. He preaches what the text <laughs> says. So if he walks through a book, he's, if it mentions anything about giving financially, he's going to address it. Uh, but he's never had like a specific, hey, you really need to tithe. Hey, you really must tithe. He's never made that um, a part of the appeal because he felt like the right way uh, to address any type of idolatry, including one of uh, financial affluence, is to start with Scripture and to focus on Christ and Christ crucified and let the Holy Spirit do the conviction. So that, that have followed that lead, and it's, it's, there's not been that problem specifically within our church, but definitely within the culture uh, of the area as far as growth. Well, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. You've mentioned this on your own podcast. You know, how should Christians engage their local cultures? Do we isolate from the culture? Should we change and evolve with the culture? Should we try to become more ve- relevant um, do we do whatever works to get them into our churches? You know, what is the wrong way to engage the culture? And what's the right way to engage the culture? Yeah, so this is, I mean, this question should be on every, every the mind of every leader of every church uh, right now is that there are definitely right and wrong ways uh, to engage the culture. As, and Because this is what we want. We want the kingdom to grow. We want the gospel to go forward. Uh, we want people to be saved. We want, we want families strengthened. We want you know people sanctified in Christ Jesus, and, and we want them shepherded. And we want them in fellowship. So that we we have acts centered uh, goals, of course, for the communities, the culture. We understand we're the light and the darkness, the city on the hill, the salt of the earth. That's how the church should be represented. But with that is an inferred difference. There has to be something different about Christians from the culture. We can't get around it. Uh, we, we are believers in a world full of unbelief. And ultimately, paganism, and not just that, but a more forthright, uh, blatant paganism in recent years. So to pretend that there can be this easy, you know, loving mesh 
between church and culture in the name of Christ is really counter uh, to anything we've seen in the New Testament, where churches were absolutely set apart from the culture around them. And I think people read that and they go, well, it looks like we have to isolate. And, and now they can come at isolation uh, from a sense of protection. I always think about uh, Rod Dreher's book, uh, The Benedict Option, and how there were a lot of churches that have been evoking that in the last 10 years. Where we're going to build our own communities. We're going to you know, find a middle of nowhere, and we're going to protect our kids from this insane culture, uh, reach out how we can and where we can, but ultimately uh, really not engage anymore. And that was their reason for homeschooling, which I don't know if that's the greatest reason for homeschooling. Uh, and we are homeschoolers, so I say that with a bit of a personal uh, take on that. Um, but no, I think isolation is not really uh, coinciding with your Matthew 28 Great Commission. There is engagement with the culture that is necessary for the Christian community. There absolutely needs to be engaged. I think people have been turned off by that because of pragmatism and programs within the church uh, calling things uh, engagement that were really just uh, adaptation. And sort of uh, accommodation, you know, like we're going to basically in order to reach the world, become the world. And that is what we really see from the from the well attended, uh, massive airport size churches is in order to reach the world. Let's let's become just like the world uh, in, in every which way, you know, when it comes to how what we listen to, what we watch, uh, let's entertain them. Let's keep them entertained. If we keep them interested, we'll fill the seats. This is all part of the Great Commission, and in doing so, they water down doctrine. Uh, they take away the, the point of sufficiency of Scripture, and they, in, in general, what we've even come to find with recent events, they hurt the mission. They don't help the mission. So mm. you're, you're, obviously you're to be in the world, not of the world, uh, and so the conversation on a deeper level stems from what does it mean to be uh, in the world and not of the world. And so we're not talking about... And people may disagree with me on this, but I'm not talking about, you know, the lights dim down and there's smoke machines. I'm not, I'm, I, I really have tears on what I care about inside the church and what I don't. And that's definitely in some, something I don't care about. Uh, really, if you feel the need to do that, go for it. You know, hopefully you're not spending a whole lot of money or tithe on it, but go for it. But at the end of the day, what are you preaching? What are you teaching? Uh, do you have fellowship and accountability within your church? Are you doing things that are going to be a little uncomfortable? And that's the biggest problem, Justin, is that we're not willing to make Christians uncomfortable because we know people seek church for comfort. Mm -hmm. And so the point is you don't have to do anything to make people feel uncomfortable except for preaching and teaching the Word of God as written. If you practice that, if your church exemplifies that, their flesh will be plenty uncomfortable. Like, don't you worry. In the same sense, you don't have to be a jerk. You can speak the truth in a loving way, which is an honest way and a caring way, and seeing yourself as the chief of sinners with integrity and empathy. But at the end of the day, you just being about the scriptures uh, will affect the culture, those who the Holy Spirit draws, of course, and how he builds the church uh, will be done through the obedience of the saints, not in the accommodation of the saints. Mm -hmm. So with that, it really only leaves one choice, and that's engagement, responsible, accountability, wisdom-filled vulnerable yet secure in Christ as the cornerstone and under biblical authority with the sufficiency of scripture engagement. So, so it's not just, it's not haphazard engagement. It's not reckless love engagement. It's understanding that the culture is fallen. The culture is a dangerous place. The culture is a dangerous place for our kids. And we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be citizens here. 
we are citizens of heaven. So we should be our, our church, our family kind of goes back to what you said about even how we are raising our kids in this culture. You know, how we are choosing to raise our children is to remind them that we are in this world, not of this world, and that this place is not really our home. And even is tied into how we were during COVID, which was everyone was focused on a temporal perspective. And you really saw a lot of churches step up and say, nope, nothing changes as far as our mission. We're still about an eternal perspective and Christians are going to be part of our culture, but we need to recognize that we ourselves as Christians, uh, not able to separate ourselves from the people God has called us uh, to bring the, the gospel to. And so I, it can be, be true to say that we are affected by the culture around us, but yet we also affect the culture around us. So the, the conversation really stems to what's the wise way to do that, you know? Yes. Well, as a, you know, as a <clears throat> former tribal church planner and someone who, who entered into just a totally different culture, the moment you start speaking the language of the country you're in, you, you enter into the culture. Um, right. Language and culture are so tied together. Um, I think one of the points you make on your podcast that, that comes out so clear and it's so helpful is we need to focus on our on our personal holiness and saturate ourselves with the scriptures, um, know it so well that we can discern what is what is keepable within the culture and what we really need to disengage from. Truly, disengage from what is sinful. Um, yeah. And so I I think that um, I think that point is just well taken. Um, that we need to be people of the word. We need to, the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is our eyes need to be to God and not to ourselves, not to our circumstances, but our eyes need to go towards him. So whatever situation we run into within the culture in that day, um, we turn to him for wisdom and understanding um, mm -hmm. what to say and when to say it or if to say something at all. Um, I, I really appreciate your perspective, uh, Adam, and that's why I wanted to ask you that question. I think that's um, such a such an edifying and 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 godly perspective on how to engage the culture in our mm. in 2022, um, especially right. during Pride Month, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The next we just recorded one um, yesterday uh, on the the verses taken out of context uh, based on this month. And how when you stand up for biblical um, morality, biblical sexual morality specifically, the first thing out of a lot of uh, the, the mouth out of a lot of adversaries is, you know, judge not lest he be judged, taking it completely out of context from the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. So we address that in the next podcast <laughs> and kind of look at the idea. Um, yeah, so well, this is what the world looks like. The church is going to counter this and they're going to hate us for it. So what do we need to be completely about to show the holiness of Christ? And to share the holiness of Christ well. One, recognize that the culture, in its most simple definition, is what we do with what God has made. So how are you going to tell people the right thing to do if you yourself don't know what God's written in his word? So it all starts, like you said, with personal spiritual disciplines. And, uh, and I would argue that pastors are nowadays telling their congregation to do what they are unwilling to do because of pride and distraction and all these other things that sort of get in the way of our calling as shepherds. And so if you don't have pastors in your church uh, willing to not only engage the culture, but to do so responsibly and are not walking out a personal holiness in their own lives, but asking you to do things that they're not walking out, then yeah. it's time to find a new church. Amen. Well, speaking of the church, speaking of, um, Train wrecks. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. <laughs> fair fair hey, assessment. What is, what's going on in the SBC? 
this is this has just been a recurring segment with many of my guests here. I need a little update about where things stand right now. Where do you stand right now? Oh. Yeah, so I mean, everyone's I mean a lot of people have read the guidestone or the guidestone. I know people have done that like a hundred times. The guidepost. Uh, the guide report. post, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For there us, you when go. you say guide to Baptist, it's only one word. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes, the, the report um, with the, uh, the testimonies and allegations and you know, these terrible things. I mean, I read the whole report to two days, uh, but I had to address it with elders uh, at our church. We are a church of elders um, where two uh, pastors are on staff and the other four are non-vocational, but they're, um, you know, they're, they're elected by the congregation. So we're a congregational church, of course. And so we have pastors, plural, a plurality of elders that, that make these decisions, uh, that, that bring this up to the congregation to, to basically protect the heart and the will of our church specifically. But when the report came out, obviously, uh, the first thought I had was I really hope um, now now that this is out? Obviously, this was evil done at the hands uh, of, of of a few people, or I guess I don't know how many necessarily, but people in and out of the last twenty years of an executive committee because of how our polity is designed and how our convention is designed, and people who move money often have to deal with the temptation of power and doing anything they can to keep that money and to keep that power, and okay. uh, this this would explain the cover up. So there was just a good old fashioned cover up. I think it included 700 churches, you know, around uh, out of 45, 46,000 churches. So I think many weren't quick to just take all the good away from what the SBC does when it comes to disaster relief and the International Mission Board and uh, just a lot of good still. I do believe a lot of good still is done with the SBC. But again, this is on everyone's mind. So it's going to be the thing that's sort of uh, whitewashing everything else. And it's something that needs to be addressed. So the bottom line is... Um, true biblical accountability, not just the appearance of biblical accountability for pragmatic purposes, uh, needs to be what we see in Anaheim. And if we don't see that in Anaheim, true repentance, I would say, which we have not seen from leadership, um, you can, and you can really pick your grievance, we, we have not seen from our SBC leadership true, um, open, cut open, seen for who we are, repentance. We're not dealing with human beings anymore. We're dealing with pragmatism pushers uh, in a lot of ways. And I say that as someone who has a great relationship with our state convention. Um, so I, I want to also make sure that we're not talking about all conventions or all entities. We are specifically talking about the SBC executive committee uh, in the last 20 years. That's for me, this has to be aimed. It can't just be SBC because you have way too many things involved in the SBC and way too many godly men who have been a part of the state convention and convention and our local association here in Florida who I would trust with my life and respect and I believe are godly men based on how they live their lives and based on how heartbroken they are over what they've read. And so there are a lot of people who are waiting for Anaheim. Uh, they're looking at the resolutions. They're looking at what can or should be done. And they're going to make a lot of decisions this year on whether or not they can go forward with the, with the Southern Baptist convention. I think you'll see some, I think you'll see some surface things. Like I think you'll see a name change to the great commission Baptist, sort of a fresh start look, which I think will be mostly PR um, I don't put a lot of weight into that. I think that's just a, a PR move uh, to save face. I think the word Southern Baptist has really seen better days. Mm. Um, so I think that people are immediately going to look at that and go, well, this is killing us. we got to get rid of that. But most people watching and wanting change are going to look at that and go, oh, well, that's obviously just a surfaced attempt and we need something deeper. So we're hoping for real, true accountability and improvement in polity. 
um, where we're not about pragmatism anymore. We're not being guided by these silly vision 2025 appeals. Probably one of the most cringeworthy moments of my entire life uh, was when we attended the Nashville Southern Baptist uh, Convention Conference, you know, and, uh, and the convention. And, you know, Ronnie Floyd's up there and he's just, I mean, he goes, he's about 48 to 50 minutes talking about this plan, like a, like a PowerPoint on how, you know, we were going to increase number in baptisms and we we're going to increase giving mm. here. And it was just number related and everyone was just sensing the room and there were real issues at hand that we needed to discuss, that there was serious division over and the place was not united. And uh, because we've honestly lost the point of the unifying uh, we've made it about the unity. We've made it about the justice. We've made it about the peace when none of that's supposed to be the objective. The objective is supposed to be the exaltation of Christ and the preaching of Christ crucified. That's the objective. And if we get away from the sufficiency uh, exclusively in God's holy word, if we get away from that and make it about all these other things, then the convention is going to go in all these other directions. But he's up there and he's like, can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? I, I don't know if anyone said anything. I mean, it was just... I mean, thousands of people in this one room and no one was on board. So that was sort of the, the, the quiet before the storm for me. Like we kind of knew that it was going to go downhill before it went back uphill again. Uh, but man, if we don't get rid of this notion uh, that we need to make, you know, all these decisions based on number and we've, we've lost what's truly and really important in the convention and what we were called to do, which is discipleship. And yeah. we say all this stuff that's just we, we, like we go to the convention and some of the speakers are all just like, we need to be unified. We need to be unified. And and we're like, in what? Like unity is not the goal here. Unified in Christ under the sufficiency of Scripture is the goal. And if we get off of that, and if we get off of doctrine, you're going to see this stuff happen over and over and over again. And so it, it's really the fate is in the messengers. Um, if the executive committee does its job, the fate will be. Uh, under the sovereignty of God, of course, uh, he's in control. Uh, but, you know, the messengers are going to have to really step up and go, we're, we're sick of the way things are going at this con at this country or, or national level. And uh, it's really and too bad. It's, it's really too bad. It's in Anaheim um, for a lot of yeah. people for travel reasons and all of that. Is is Anaheim the last stand for you and, and for many churches? Do you feel like this is the last stand? Um, well, I can tell you that our... <laughs> Tell you, my friend and fellow pastor uh, Neil Helton would not want me to say anything of permanence. We were to, <laughs> in terms of you never know, and, uh, yeah. and we, we can't predict the future. For me personally, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I'm just I'm kind of done uh, pretending. But let's I want to be honest about one thing, um, you know, because I haven't been honest about anything so far. So I'd like to be honest about <laughs> one you, thing. <laughs> the 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 abuse, the terrible report. Uh, the cringeworthy, uh, you know, re responses to the report, all that. Uh, they're not, they're only recently synonymous with the SBC. It's not why many have cringed at the SBC in the last 20, 15, 20 years. So we need to stop pretending that like everything was peachy keen and then this report re released and now people are having second thoughts about being a part of the convention. The issue is the sufficiency of Christ. That is where the call of faithfulness resides, is in the sufficiency of Jesus and the, the true mission of the church, which is not to build your church in number by any means necessary. I feel like the phrase, by any means necessary, has done more damage to the convention than anything else. Uh, it's the reason for a cover-up. It's the reason for pragmatism. It's the only reason 
where a state convention would get someone like David Hughes from Church by the Glades to come preach on election versus free will. You know, I mean, these are the kind of decisions we're making because these churches bring thousands of people. And if the number of attendance is the reason why you are platforming people, it points to a much deeper, darker issue within the convention. Basically saying, forget the sufficiency of Scripture, forget the knowledge of Scripture, or even the application of Scripture. If you are drawing a big crowd, we want you to lead this brigade. And that, to me, is the true cancer uh, that the convention has found itself diagnosed with. And all of this has just been um, an effect of that. And so if that doesn't change, I won't play a part to it. Um, I won't be a part of a convention uh, that is putting pragmatism where doctrine should be. And uh, if we can't get back on, on pace with that, even if it costs us attendance, we need to see that as the Lord sort of sifting and, and protecting his church, not just building up the church by all numbers possible by watering down doctrine and the true purpose of the church. Uh, so I won't say that, you know, Anaheim's the last stand, but it's a big deal. And, uh, and I'm not the only one in our church that thinks so, and I'm certainly not speaking out of turn. I've definitely talked to a good amount of our members about this, and, and they're pretty, pretty much on the same, uh, same page. But I will say, too, uh, Justin, that doesn't mean that I think any less of Paul Chitwood from the International Mission Board. Like, we're set up in a way where you can give, you can withhold your cooperative giving, and you can still give to the International Mission Board. You can fund missionaries personally. There are so many options as far as how you can continue to give. You can give straight to the state convention. Um, so there, there are plenty of options outside of just completely withdrawing, or if you do withdraw, not giving to anything having to do with the SBC. Does that make sense? Like, I want to make yeah, sure that uh, there are options are presented, and it's not just I'm in or I'm out, yes. uh, that relationships are what matters within the church and within the convention. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you, Adam. And, and yeah, certainly we are all, <laughs> all of us who, who would call ourselves Theo bros, all of us who, who love the Lord, who are who are seeking to be um, faithful to the Great Commission, are praying for you, praying for your church, um, praying for other churches like Alan Nelson's church, um, which I spoke to him um, a few weeks back. Just there is really a, a struggle here, a, a need for wisdom and what to do going forward. Um, and so we will continue to pray for you all and, and that God's will would be done in all of this. Um, Adam, our, our time's kind of running short here. You have a, a book on multi-generational churches um, that's going to be coming out at some point. You're, you finished it, what did you say, half a chapter. Um, can you just give <laughs> us a glimpse of, of what that's going to look like? Yes. Yeah, so the outline of the book is really about pinpointing uh, the reasons and purposes for seeing your church um, develop multi-generational relationships. And it's not in the same place of, of, of tactics. It's not like having, hey, here's how you get your church to a place of multi-generational relationships. But in it, you'll find sort of organic ways in which a church has um, established uh, multi-generational relationships or it really allows them to breathe within the church. And then the other half of the book is all about the biblical significance and the importance of learning from the generations behind you uh, as well as being accepting of the generations in front of you and being willing to invest in those generations. So ultimately, it's, it's about multi-generational church because 
in our culture, it seems like we are, you have young churches and you have old churches and you have churches that are sort of siloed. And that echoes like a full programmatic ministry model of which you kind of go to church and you only hang out with people who are in your age, mm -hmm. uh, in your age group. And so it's really combatant to that, not in a mean way, but in, in a really we need to look forward and say, OK, if we have this millennial drop off rate, uh, you know, that's occurred and, and just it's increasing in number every year. Uh, it's because kids have not seen themselves as equal uh, in the uh, cohort cohorts in the church itself. They have not seen themselves as part of the church as much as, uh, you know, the older person or their parents or anything like that. And so if they see themselves as part of the church, you're doing your job as a multi-generational church. If you have older generations investing in the younger generations and younger generations uh, listening to and being able to be taught by Christians who have been there longer in the faith, you're developing Paul, Barnabas, Timothy uh, type relationships uh, within the church. A lot of Titus too, uh, for our uh, women relationships and in the church. And so there's just a lot there to dig into, but you know, it's roughly seven or eight chapters and it won't be that long. I think it's like it's supposed to come out to be like 180 pages or something like that. But, but the whole point is really to provide a context of multi-generational church and how it can be properly and biblically more than importantly implemented uh, within Bible belt church culture. Well, thank you, Adam. Let's have you on again. You can, you can, uh, Talk a little bit more about your book and, and all that the Lord is teaching you as you look at um, churches. Um, Adam is the pastor at Amelia Baptist Church in Fernandina Beach, Florida. Um, he also hosts Amelia Baptist Roundtable Podcast. Thank you, my friend, for joining us. What a joy it's been. Justin, I really appreciate you and uh, what you do, man. I look forward to uh, hearing from you at that Sufficiency of Christ and the Call to Faithfulness Conference in uh, yeah. Princeton, Illinois, July 22nd hey, through 24th. Up, join us. It'll be great to have <laughs> you, you. You'll be with Dustin Binge, Curtis Yes, O'Dell. I, look, I really look crowd. forward to that. He, uh, brother, he, came, he came to little old Princeton a couple years ago and spoke at our community service um, and just laid out the gospel so beautifully. And we were like, man, I don't know if he'll ever want to come back. Like, <laughs> you're just, we're a small church, so... I... Uh, He's I'm going to so, do my best to get him there, get him at our church, and uh, put him up at the beach for a week or so. See there you go. Yeah, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin, thank you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it.